Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, home of the Firebird Book Awards, the Positive Change Podcast Awards, and this podcast, Authors on Fire. I am Pat Rulo, and today I welcome back a Firebird Book Award winning author. He is Larry Freeland, and his book is titled Legacy of Honor, The Air Warrior, an Air War Saga. Larry is a third generation military veteran. His father was an officer in the Army Air Corps, United States Air Force, whose career spanned 30 years from World War II through the early stages of the Vietnam War. His grandfather was a World War I doughboy, and his two younger brothers were war veterans who served in multiple conflicts following the Vietnam War. Larry served in Vietnam as an Army helicopter pilot, an infantry officer with the 101st Airborne Division, and he was a previous Firebird Book Award winner with his books titled Chariots in the Sky and Legacy of Honor, The Patriarch, A World War I Saga. And I'm always happy and honored to spend time with him. So welcome back, Larry. Thank you, Pat. It's uh, an honor to be back, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you again about the current book. I know. Future. I, I'm so happy that it won because it meant you and I had an opportunity to talk. So kind of selfish reasons here. So congratulations once again on winning the Firebird Book Award. Well, thanks. I was very pleased, and I saw I got uh, two first place and two second place in different categories within the uh, genres. So uh, I'm always pleased when that happens, and I feel particularly uh, about this book, uh, uh, World War II and Ford. But World War II is just uh, my father served in it, and mm-hmm. his career man, as you mentioned, and uh, grew up around uh, World War II veterans, uh, grew up on air bases, bomber bases, they call them SAC bases, Strategic Air Command. So I was around these fellows as a young boy and growing up well into my college days and post-college days until my dad passed. And I've got a lot of respect for him. And in writing that book, I, uh, I learned a lot more than I already had learned or knew. And then the respect just grew. These are, these are incredible men that, that served, in, particularly in World War II and the bomber groups uh, flying out of England and mm-hmm. over uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, yeah. Their lives were... Uh, Fascinating in one respect, but uh, they lived on the edge, and uh, many of them didn't return. So the Kirkus reviews, which is pretty popular out there, uh, they they really uh, gave me some very good comments about that aspect of it. Is you feel like you're right there in the cockpit with the protagonist Sean, and you're flying on the missions not only over Europe, then later on when he gets pulled back in and serves in the uh, Korean War and flies over Korea during that war in B twenty nine. So. And that's what I tried to capture. I want to make it personal and yet uh, embedded in historical events so folks can relate to the character, the protagonist, and the people around him or her and, and, and you know, live what they're living, feel what they're feeling, and uh, at the same time pick up on some of our history and come out the other side and go, wow, I learned a few things mm-hmm. I didn't know. And my goodness, what did all these people go through to, to survive or, or get us to where we are today? And uh, right. it's, it can be quite harrowing. <laughs> 
For sure. I'm happy you mentioned that. You must be reading my mind because I wanted to read a few testimonial snippets from readers and that Kirkus review was quite kind. I'll read a little bit of it. It said, be prepared to feel as though you're in the co-pilot seat beside Sean, the protagonist. Another, someone said, another work of art. Freeland is an absolute master of flight combat narrative, a decorated veteran of air combat in Vietnam. His ability to put the reader in the seat of a B-17 beset by German fighter planes and anti-aircraft fire is superb. And there are so many more. That just has to feel so good to you as a writer. Uh, it does, uh, very much so. And uh, it's humbling. Uh, I've been told, uh, and I think this is probably, it's the third book, and I think I've probably, my best so far, although I'm certainly proud of all three, but... Uh, it's just a special place there for me when I, like I mentioned earlier, growing up around these men, hearing some of their stories and and, uh, and so on, and then having served myself a little bit, reflecting back on what they went through. I just, you know, they call it the greatest generation. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. I think every generation has its greats. I think this generation, when you had 16 million plus men and several million women step up and do what they did, uh, you, you got to say, these, these folks were probably, as a group, one of the best generations we've produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so many stories and so much very varied uh, opportunities for them to contribute and, and sacrifice, as many did, and then come out the other end and, um, in essence, win, win World War II, both in the Pacific and in, in Europe. Um, just incredible what they what they did and what they what they sacrificed to accomplish that. Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking, Larry, you, you obviously have the background, the backdrop, the experience of three generations to understand all the nuances that most people don't. But how about writing? So I'm sure there are many people that might have all of these different experiences, but to be able to put a pen to paper and have it make sense and to be an award-winning book, how did you go about that? That's a good question and a tough question to answer. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> short version, I'm, I'm pretty old, and I had three careers before I took full retirement. And I did a lot of writing, uh, business writing, over the decades of various types. So, uh, And I'm not an avid reader, but I am a reader of, his, of history. My wife's an avid reader. She reads a book or two almost a week. There's books all over her nightstand. <laughs> uh, and uh, then watching, I'm a big movie guy, watching movies over the years particularly documentaries and, and, and um, historical war movies, if you will. Not that I'm a war or not, but it just there's a certain amount of drama and stuff that uh, they just bring out and the sacrifices. So I had a lot of that in, you know, experience behind me. And about four years ago, I decided to write that first book. Uh, started. Uh, I had written it, as, I think we talked about this earlier, but I'd written it as a screenplay many years ago. And I uh, got close, but not in a cigar, so to speak. But uh, everybody told me, you really, Larry, you need to make a book out of that. And this was back in the early 90s. And this, we're talking about chariots in the sky. And uh, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm still fully employed working in the bank and all that. I don't have time to do that. And really, I'm not a writer. But about four years ago, I pulled all that stuff out and said, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. That story really, uh, really, uh, I need to, I want to tell it. So I sat down and I and I wrote the first book, uh, Chariots of Sky, and, and uh, found the publisher, and it did quite well. And um, he, he wanted me to see if I could come up with something else. And I, we came up with the trilogy, and I started writing that. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm, at the back end of my life, I've fallen into this, and I enjoy doing it. It's kind of where everything just kind of came together. You know, the stars on the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. This guy, I mean, I'm a history guy. I, I, and I've got all this experience uh, around veterans, going back to World War One, as uh, with my grandfather and some of his friends, uh, and then living on, on air bases, like I said, and been active in veterans communities going forward, and. Um, all this just kind of comes together. You put it in a pot and you shake it around. And there's a lot of experiences I can draw from. There's a lot of information I've come across and people I've interacted with and hearing their stories. And when I write the books, I just sit down and uh, two things happen with me. One, uh, when I'm not being creative in my writing, I do research and pull stuff from wherever I can find it and put it in a data bank. And then when I've got a storyline and chapters uh, lined up in where I'd like to capture or cover in that chapter or chapters, and then when I get creative, I just sit down and start writing, and I just shut the door and go crazy until I fall on top of my computer and call it a day or a night. So there's there's two different aspects. When I'm being creative, I can draw a lot of this stuff and, and get it get it on the screen here on the computer, and go back and clean it up and and then. Uh, make it a little bit more presentable, if you will, and, and flow better and, and all that. But uh, between those two aspects, getting the data, the information to help make and flesh out the story, and then being creative to write the story and drawing on my own experience and my own knowledge and my own associations over the years with different people, it just all kinds of, kind of falls together. You know, it doesn't just do that, but there's a lot of effort involved there, but it just Sometimes it just flows out, and I can't even explain where it comes from. Excellent. You know, thinking about research and putting all that data together, that's always an exciting time, too. You might not be creative while you're doing that, but boy, doesn't it spark creativity. And it probably, I know when I do research, it it, it leads me into places that I didn't know I might go just because you're learning new things and you think, wow, I could use that and that. Then then it almost becomes too difficult to, to know which direction to go because there's so much good information in your database. And I wonder if you find that as well. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just... Uh... I, I couldn't. I couldn't say anything more than what you just said. I would just go ditto. It's uh, <laughs> it's fascinating, and what you what you can find. And you might be going down. In my case, sometimes I'm going down one direction, thinking this chapter ought to kind of touch on these. And in my research, I'll find something I didn't know about, or yes. or brings out what I'm trying to capture even better. And I'll kind of go down a little different different path with it. And when I get to the other end, uh, through all that research and being able to pull things in that. I wasn't knowledgeable of, hadn't heard of, or was out there that you just don't hear about and bring them into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as it flows with your story concept, sure. uh, that, that's a lot of fun to me. And I, that's where I'm really learning stuff that I, I hadn't heard before. Now, I've, I know I've, I've read a lot about World War II, uh, particularly and a little bit about Korea. But World War II, every, my generation of guys, we just kind of grew up with that around, right. these, around these men and women who served and a lot of us uh, had, uh, you know, would, would enjoyed more books or war movies. And I met when I was a little boy. I met Audie Murphy, mm. or two, most decorated soldier uh, in the war. I was just a little boy when I met him. But my generation, of the younger guys, I you know, we all knew who Audie Murphy was. If you, if you talk to any you know more current generations, who's Audie Murphy? They just kind of look at you like, well, I don't know him. <laughs> mm. But uh, we just kind of grew up around that. 
which um, makes it easier for me to do some of the things in my stories because it was just a part of me. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you could even pull little um, personality pieces from the the men that you had met. Oh, yeah. Uh, My first book uh, was loosely based on my experiences in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. A Life of Chinooks, the book was based on Huey Company, Salt Company. But some of my characters were composites of of people Mm -hmm. I served with Mm -hmm. uh, over there and ran into. uh, So that that, that helps bring it to life a little more. Uh, In in the uh, first book, The Patriarch, my grandfather, he and I were very close when I was younger because my dad was always gone, and he would when he would go overseas, he would put us next to his, his parents there in a little town called Louisville, Ohio. And as a young boy, I, I spent a lot of time with him. He was kind of like a surrogate father. And we had a close relationship all the way through my college days uh, when we were together. Uh, so, and, and he never talked about his experiences, but he had a, a large group of guys that uh, loved to play poker and, and hung out together, and most of them had served in, in France and in, in the trenches. I don't know if they served together, but they had served. And, and I'd interact with them a little bit and, and hear some of their stuff when when uh, I was around them. They wouldn't talk to me about it, but they'd talk between each other, and I'd hear some of their stories. And, uh, interacted with some of those fellows as I got a little older. And World War II, like I say, Dad was always, as a senior officer, there was always uh, people coming and going in his house for... Uh, social events and things like that. And I would have to, my brothers and I would be the waiters, if you will, <laughs> taking care of everybody. So you'd, you get to hear all their stories and some of them, you know, talk to some of them and, uh, and, or, or a little bit. Again, they wouldn't dive into the trenches with me and go, you know, but uh, you pick up on a lot of stuff from that. And I uh, just really admired these guys, uh, these men that I met in, particularly in the air crews. My dad had a tremendous respect for them. Uh, uh, his whole career, and um, you know, I, my middle brother grew up to be a Navy pilot. I, I did aviation there in the Army. I was going to go into the Air Force, um, but got drafted before my flight classes started uh-huh. back in '69 or '68. I'm sorry, and, uh, but I, I might have been a pilot in the Air Force for a long time. But mm-hmm. I was an Army pilot, which is you know just as good, a little bit different, but just as good. Yep. Wow, what a lovely way to grow up. It was. You meet a lot of people um, across the board. We, we we lived in a lot of places. All these, a lot of good experiences. I kind of describe it as, as, a, as a young boy going into uh, college days as kind of living the life of Huckleberry Finn. Uh-huh. It was always an adventure <laughs> wherever you went and opportunities in the different places. The only downside, if that's the right word, is you never really have a place to call home sure. because you're always moving around and you make friends and then you, you leave and you make new friends. So you, you learn to make friends, but you, know, you, you seldom make, at least in that environment, close friends because you're, you're always moving around. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just part of it. It is. And there's pros and cons to everything. But yeah, I understand that feeling like you're missing some roots, but that's physical. Your roots were your family. So wherever they were, you were. And I'm drawing on that in my current book, book three called The Descendants, which are the three sons of the protagonist in book two, The Air Warrior. And part of that I just mentioned is because we were always moving around, the three of us were even though our, we had an age difference, my middle brother was a year and a half, and my younger was about six years younger than me. Um, you know, we still had each other to turn to and, and, uh, and be friends. We were brothers, but we'd get a little closer and become friends, particularly my middle brother, because we were 
pretty close in age, and uh, you know, you always had your, your family to to uh, right. around you. Right. So my brothers and I were pretty close growing up, partly because of we were always moving. Right, you knew you at least had each other, so that, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a plus. And I'm trying to capture that a little bit in this book I'm writing now and bring that out because uh, it is kind of a, an uh, an aspect of growing up in a military family on mm-hmm. military bases, at least. I'm sure it's still the same, but um, I know when I, when we did in the 40s, well, the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the early 80s, that was central to all that. Right, right. So the second book is The Air Warrior. Maybe give us just a little peek to entice our, our listeners, give us a little idea of what that book uh, entails, and then we'll get to maybe chat a bit about your third upcoming book. Sure. Uh, book two is... Um, Starts out in World War II, and it's dedicated to my father. He's 30 years in. Well, the Army Air Corps, in starting World War II, uh, after the war, the, the mid-late 40s, they changed it to uh, the Army of uh, the United States Air Force. But he made 30-year career out of it. He served uh, the 8th Air Force in England uh, from about 43 till the war ended. He came back and um, got out of the service, married my m- mother, and then I was born, and then my brothers followed me over a period of five and a half, almost six years. Uh, and but when the Korean War started, he was pulled back in, and he ended up going over in the, serving in the Korean War for about a year and a half, and then made a career out of it. He stayed in the uh, service, Air Force, uh, in the SAC Strategic Air Command bomber bases, and um, moved around a lot. He had a very good career. He was uh, very, very well respected, and. and uh, a man and had a lot of friends. Uh, really got to know several of them. So this book is is loosely is loosely based on his crew, dedicated to him and all the men and women who served in World War II, Korea, and, and beyond. What I tried to do is capture the flavor of what it was like to flavor maybe the wrong word, but what it was like to fly in the European theater out of England over Nazi occupied Europe in the war. In the early part of that war, late 42, 43, until uh, going into early 44, uh, the Air, Air Force and the other Air Forces they brought over into the theater. In the early days, there weren't a lot of aircraft or pilots, and they were flying. They didn't have any mission numbers. They just flew in, uh, until they were wounded, killed, or, or just cracked up. And so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, men who had a rough time in the early part of that war, flying out of England in those B-17s over Europe, and B-24s also. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart, who makes an appearance in this book, too, uh, flew B-24s. He flew uh, 23 missions over Nazi-occupied Europe, as an example. Um, but you know, I wanted to give the reader that experience and, and pull into the historical events and the different some of the different bombing missions and what it was like to be sitting in a formation of B-17s uh, being attacked relentlessly by German fighters from all directions. And, and then as they got over their targets, the fighters would pull back, and, and then the, the anti-aircraft fire would uh, pick up, and they'd be flying through anti-aircraft fields, uh, ACAC and stuff like that, they call it. And in the movies, you'd see in the newsreels and documentaries, you'll see all these puffs of black smoke, that's ACAC, and, and the Germans were quite good at bracketing these uh, aircraft in formations. So these men, uh, when they crossed into Nazi Europe, uh, they were subjected constantly to fighter attacks and then 
any aircraft fire. So it was a it was a gauntlet they flew through for hours uh, to bomb wherever target they had, and then and then get back out of Europe and go back to England. As the war progressed, and the number of aircraft and crews increased significantly, and the the Luftwaffe of the German Air Force was degraded, it you know the, the amount of casualties and the um, Drop. It never went away because the Germans were constantly coming after them. But uh, the, the loss rate dropped as the war got closer to the end for the air crews. But in the early days, it was uh, it was incredible. And I wanted to capture all that and what it was like to be flying into what almost was certain death. I mean, some of these missions, two, three hundred uh, B-17s would go out, and a third of them wouldn't come back. And every one of those aircraft had 10 men in it. Mm. So it wasn't unusual to lose three, four, five hundred men in a mission with a couple hundred B-17s in it. So uh, how's it, what's it like? Uh, think about that. You're a young young man, and you're, mm. you're doing this routinely as your job. And how, how, do, how do these fellas do it? So I wanted to capture that and put the reader in the minds and experiences of those fellows in World War II. War ends, they get out, and they, most of them come back to the, you know come back and try to pick up with their lives. But then when we went into Korea, the Korean War, uh, the military had been degraded to the wrong one, but they cut way back on it across the board, and they didn't have uh, they didn't have enough of a force to to gear up and go over there to Korea right out of the gate. So they started calling back a lot of fellows who had served in World War II in, in critical areas, and one of them was pilots. Mm. Uh, and uh, so a lot of them got called back in, was trained, retrained, or trained in B-29s to go over, and fighters. I'm, my story is about bombers, crews, were trained in the B-29s, went back over and flew out of Japan and Okinawa to uh, bomb um, uh, Korea uh, during that war. <clears throat> and that's a war I didn't really know much about, particularly from the air standpoint. And when I researched that, I was just absolutely flabbergasted uh what these men endured uh flying over korea uh during that war was just incredible and these b-29s they they were their state-of-the-art plane at the end of world war ii used extensively in in the japan in the pacific theater not in the european theater but this was the main bomber when the korean war started and they went up against uh, uh fighter planes russian migs uh flying over korea which I knew a little bit about, but I always thought it was a fighter war, American fighters, you know, going against uh, North Korean and, and Russian fighters. But it was uh, Russian fighters taking on American bomber crews that got closer to the border between North Korea and, and China. They called it MIG Alley. And these fellows, they just, oh, my gosh, they could be decimated. And what they had to do. Uh, put up with. They started with daylight missions, and then they had to switch to nighttime missions because their loss rate was so high. And they painted the bottom of their aircraft uh, black right. so that at night, when they were flying at night, the searchlights that were radar controlled had a harder time finding the bomber formations because mm -hmm. the bottom of the airplane had been painted uh, black to look like it blended in with the night sky. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to capture that, uh, and uh, that was an instance where I really learned a lot in my research and embedded it in the book and stood back and went, oh, my goodness, how did any of these fellows that flew bomber B-29s over uh, Korea closer to the border with China ever survive? But uh, then uh, my, my main character, he, he does that. He comes back, and he, he's, uh, he had met Curtis LeMay, who was a colonel in the early days of World War II, went and was elevated to general pretty quick and moved to the Pacific and headed up 
all the B-29 efforts uh, over there came out of that war as the top, uh, one of the top generals and was the father of Strategic Air Command, SAC, and, and was elevated to head all of that up and then became chief of staff uh, of the Air Force uh, in the late uh, 50s, going into the 60s. He was chief of staff of the Air Force during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And my dad actually had met him during the war, in World War II. And, and over there, uh, over dad's career, he, he ran into LeMay a couple times. He wasn't a mentor of my father, but they, they interacted. They both had an interest in uh, Russian history, Russian politics, and so on. Um, LeMay and many of the top generals in World War II felt the Russians were going to be our real enemies uh, when that war ended, which they did. They became known as the Cold War. So I tried to capture that a little bit. And uh, My main character served during the Cold War. He's, he sees, um, he's right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis when he's stationed at Homestead Air Base and, uh, and a couple other things that go on down there. The early part of the Vietnam War, right at the beginning. So this book covers World War II, Korea, and then the early phases of the Cold War. Oh, I'd say over 50, close to 60% of the book starts with, you know, it's embedded in World War II, then Korea, and then uh, a little less on the others that I mentioned. But I wanted to give the reader a flavor of what it was like to to be a part of uh, Bomber Command through that, that basically that 30-year history. A mm-hmm. uh, particular interest, though, was, uh, I'll mention this real quick, Homestead Air Base during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were, Dad was stationed there as one of the senior officers when that thing, we had been there and that thing kicked off and then it ended. But my brothers and I, we were living there on base, of course, with Mom and Dad. And, uh, we were right in the middle of that thing. I was in the 10th grade when that unfolded. And Homestead went from a bomber base almost overnight to a massive army base full of Nike missile sites all around and mm-hmm. fighter fighter aircraft everywhere, hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. And the army was coming and building up to eventually potentially attack uh, Cuba during that. Mm-hmm. So we were right in the middle of that, and I wanted to capture some of that because that was, to me, really fascinating, too. I mean, I was old enough now to know. At first, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Look at all these army guys yeah. and all this activity. And then I said, hey, this is for real. Yes. And then, of course, you know, Everybody thought we were going to go to war and have a nuclear war. And uh, I've embedded this in the book, and this is true. The night before <clears throat> Khrushchev backed down to Kennedy, my dad was living on the flight line, and he'd come home, change clothes, every once in a while, eat, say hi to us, and go back. This went on for weeks. And the night before, we didn't know at the time, but the night before uh, Khrushchev backed down, my dad came home, and he was as serious as I've ever seen him. He was always as serious then. And he take my he took my mom back to their room, shut the door, and uh, me being me, and I was the oldest at the time. I I didn't go and listen listen through the door, but I was listening through the wall. And mm-hmm. Basically, he was telling mom that in the next twenty four hours, uh, the Russians are either going to back down or we're going to have a nuclear war. And there's nothing I can do about it. Nothing I can do for you and the boys. It's uh-huh. it, there's no place you can go. He said, just you know, it, it could be over, and, could be and should be over in twenty four hours, but. Right now, we don't know which way it's going to go. And when they came out of that room, my mom was crying, and my dad, I mean, he was, he was upset, obviously. Yeah. He said goodbye to me and my brother, and he went back to the flight line. And then, of course, the next day or two, Kennedy announces to the to us, the whole country, that, you know, they back down and these things are happening. But that's how serious and how mm-hmm. close we got to that. So I, I wanted to capture that in my book, and I think people have read it go, I didn't know all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anyway, I've, so... For all this activity from World War II through the early days of the 
beginning of the uh, air, air war over uh, Vietnam. I wanted to put the readers in, in that and, and live through the, the main character, but also his family and how they were impacted. Right. I wanted to capture some of that, the wife, the, you know, the, the young, the sons, if you will. And I end with uh, the loss of, of one of the close friends of Sean, and he's looking back as they're burying the man and his three sons, going, "Oh my God, they're, they're all aged now, where they could go to the go to mm-hmm. Vietnam," and that sets up the book three. <laughs> that's a long answer, but I was on a roll. <laughs> no, that, all, all of that needed to be said. How's that? Oh my gosh! All right, so then the third one, the final one in the trilogy, the Descendants, and that's going to be this year probably, right? Uh, yes. Uh, we uh, probably uh, released that uh, late into the summer or early uh, uh, fall, so September, early October. I'd like, like to get it out uh, before uh, uh, Veterans Day uh, in, the, in November there, mm-hmm. November 11th. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's looking good. I've got a couple chapters left to draft and then uh, – Probably by the end of this month, early part of next month, I'll turn it over to my publisher, uh, publisher authority, and Frank Eastland, and uh, then he'll put his people on it, and you know, go through the editing and the yep. cleaning up or whatever designs, and then uh, get it out, get it out. in an arc, and then go from there. Okay. So yeah, it'd be uh, it's uh, September, okay. late August, September. All right. Well, we will look forward to that. So. Do you have any plans for another series, another book? What's next now that you're going to be through with this this year? Well, when this one uh, is turned over to Frank, and then, of course, I still play a role as they go through it, but I'm going to kind of just chill for a couple months uh, and work through that. But I have two more book concepts that I've pulled together, and I'm kicking around which one I want to do first. But I'm thinking right now that... uh, I will probably do the one, go back to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this book, I've still loosely uh, got running around in my mind, and I've got a file set up where I'm throwing things in it. But um, it would be a short, a couple-year period there and kind of, again, be historical fiction. But a uh, storyline would be built around my wife, uh, Linda. Uh, she was married to her college sweetheart uh, and, and just before in, his, in their senior year college, University of Georgia, and um, he got drafted in uh, his last quarter into the army in '68 uh, and uh, early '68, and he hadn't finished his last quarter. He was going to go to work for American Family Life. He, he actually knew the owners, the Amos brothers, at the time, and they wanted him to come aboard. They were helping him to pay for his college, actually. But he said, when they drafted him, he said, well, I'm just going to get this over with, come back and pick up with my wife. So he got drafted. He was sent to Fort Polk when everybody back then going to Fort Polk goes to Vietnam. So he was shipped over to Vietnam as an infantry guy, and he was killed on his third combat mission, 28th day in country. Uh, and, uh, of course, Linda became a widow. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that, was, that was really tough on her, obviously, and the family. Uh, and then in 16, uh, this is, he got killed in the uh, first part of 69. And in 1969, that's when I just finished officer school at Fort Benning in the end of June, going into July. I was living off base for six months with two of my buddies, and they were doing their thing. I was doing mine. We were just waiting to come down on orders to, for ourselves to go to Vietnam as infantry platoon leaders in December of 69. 
uh, one of my roommates uh, introduced me on a blind date to his girlfriend's girlfriend, who was Linda. <laughs> and you know, this turned out to be her first date since losing her husband. Mm-hmm. And they told me in advance that she was a, recently widowed, and I was hesitant to do it. But mm-hmm. we went out, and, uh, and, and the rest is history. We just kind of <laughs> fell for each other and uh, dated. And I went off to flight school in January of uh, 70. Uh, and um, it was in the middle of that we decided to get married. Uh, you know, we're going back and forth. Should we? Shouldn't we? She'd lost her husband. I didn't want to put her through another, uh, you know, another situation where she could lose an, her second husband. I mean, there's a couple of dangerous jobs in Vietnam. One was an infantry man, an infantry officer, an infantry platoon guy, and a helicopter pilot. And here I was, both of them. And I was going to go to Vietnam when I finished flight school, which I ultimately did. So I wanted to kind of, I'm thinking of capturing this, trying to capture this story through kind of her eyes. What kind of courage does it take for, for her to do this? What kind of faith? How does somebody deal with all that? And I wanted to try and capture that. In her case, we both kept diaries while I was gone for the year. Of course, we wrote letters and we wrote tapes. So we got a lot of, we got a lot of information we can draw from to capture uh, personal moments, if you will, on both sides of the globe. I'm over there in combat. She's over here teaching and worrying about me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, of course, tee it up with the first her first husband, the loss of Joel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I just think it would make a compelling story if I could capture it. Oh, I do too. I hope that can come about. Oh, that's so exciting! And it would be a project for the two of you to work on together. It's just there's there's so many positives about that. So I hope. Yeah. I hope that can come up. I got the chills thinking about that. <laughs> when, I, when I float it with people, I, I get that response. Yeah. When I'm kind of gravitating towards that. Again, keep us posted on that as well. Sure will. All right, Larry, I know there's so much more we could talk about. I want to make sure we are not missing anything that you wanted to highlight today that you feel is important. Well, I think we pretty well covered it. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You all have been very, very gracious with me and uh, appreciate oh. all the support and, and the awards. Uh, looking well, forward to my next book coming out eventually. Maybe and maybe it'll get an award uh, when, when it comes out. You're going <laughs> to ship it off to us and we'll... We'll keep our fingers crossed. Well, then if you would share any and all contact information where folks can find you and get copies of your previous books. Okay. Uh, I would go to my website, Larry Freeland, L-A-R-R-Y-F-R-E-E-L-A-N-D.com. If you go to that, I'm on it now. It's um, It has all the information about each each book. It's got a homepage. It talks a little bit about me. And then the three novels, you drop down on any one of them and you get a synopsis. You can see the reviews. And then that, on that particular drop down, you can you know, hit buy the book. And then there's an events and media page where you can see the different uh, advertising that's been done. And I've done a lot of podcasts like we're doing today, which have been very gratifying and helped. So if you go to that website, uh, you learn about the book or books. You can order them right from there. They are available on Amazon, which uh, is the biggie, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, BAM, Books a Million, and Indie. Uh, they're all three books are out in um, hard, uh, paperback and ebook formats, all formats. And my first book, Chariots in the Sky, I will mention this, uh, was produced and released in December as an audio book from a production company out of New York. Good. That was so much fun doing that one. Did you narrate it? 
No, I, I have a two-minute opening uh, introducing the book, but they actually uh, use professional actors. We interviewed six actors, or they auditioned six male, six male actors and three female actors, and one, one male and one female was chosen, and they actually narrate the book. And uh, I've never listened to an audio book before, uh, but apparently it's really popular and growing in popularity. Yes. And my gosh, when we had to proof, uh, listen to the first uh, when they when had it done, I listened to that and I went, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. this is this is like being in a the theater without a screen. <laughs> it was yeah. really good. It was fun. <laughs> no, it takes it to a different level. Audio has a little magical quality to it, and especially if you have good narrators. So yes, I'm going to take a listen to that. And so I encourage everyone to head over to your website, LarryFreeland.com. His first book, Chariots in the Sky. The second book, Legacy of Honor, The Patriarch. And the third that just won the recent Firebird, Legacy of Honor, The Air Warrior. And we will look forward to The Descendants. So much going on. I'm always thrilled to talk with you. I learn so much and um, looking forward to more conversations with you. So thank you for taking the time to take all of your life experiences and putting it out there in such a well-defined form so that readers can learn and that the history stays alive. So thank you for doing that. You're certainly welcome. Uh, and Thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to share that. You are welcome. Let's do it again. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Pat.